Go ahead and testing one two three testing. Yeah, just turn turn it up a little bit. It's on. It's just not picking up. Testing. Here we go. Now I can hear myself. If I had your voice, that'd be nice. Times I've been here on Sundays. Uh, I, I'm, I'm probably close to ten. I don't know. There's been quite a few times in the last 25 years, and I can remember a number of times, at least four or five, that as soon as they were seeing the invitation, I had to leave and get to the airport to catch that one o'clock flight. And I thought, ooh, I hate to do that. So we stayed over tonight, just so you know how much I love you guys. You know. So, do you feel the love? All right, good. So. But now I'm on a 3 o'clock flight tomorrow and get home at midnight. So basically it's costing us a whole day. But Eileen and I are very flexible. We can work anywhere. So we keep it going. She starts a class tomorrow. She actually teaches at Harding. So anyway, we're cutting it a little close. But anyway, we're uh, glad to be with you. I um, was not exactly sure where to go with this tonight. So bear with me. I'm going to present some things But think of it in terms of a question you're looking at as you look at growing as a church. Because the size, we don't view size as a faith challenge. We we view the atheist as a challenge to our faith. We view crises in the world and immorality as a challenge to our faith. We view divisions in the church as a challenge to our faith. But it's interesting, we often don't view size as a challenge to our faith. But let me put it in context. What do you think my wife would say back 30 years ago? We had three kids at home. Two girls were, um, say the girls were 15 and 14, and our son at that time was eight years younger than that. Do the math. And I come home and I say, you know, hon, there's a family that's just lost their parents, four kids. I think we're going to adopt them. And, by the way, they're coming tomorrow. What kind of... Re- and I have a sweet wife, but I think at that moment, her response is, Everett, are you crazy? Where would they even sleep? And, did you look at our checkbook last week? What, what are you thinking? I mean, you can imagine... In that case, size would have a lot to do with our relationship and our whole dynamic. And if we actually did take on four more kids with the three we had, our world would never be the same. Now, would it be a good thing to do? Especially if the one who lost their lives was my brother and his wife. Would I even have a choice? Are you with me with that? And that, at that point, I think we'd look at it as a faith challenge. We're going to get through this. We'll do what we can to, to... I don't have a brother, by the way, but I'm just saying, I'm just creating a scenario to understand that size is a challenge to our faith. And a lot of times in churches, we don't see it that way. So I'm going to go through some of the lessons from the seven churches of Asia of what can we learn about churches? And I was wanting to beat in there so I have a whiteboard. So anyway, you just can't win. <laughs> if you do, I need a... 
Well, whatever you want to do, I'll keep talking. And somebody can show up with a whiteboard and a pen and I'll let you do the writing. So whoever comes in, you'll be put to work. (laughs) But what I want us to do is look at these lessons from the challenges that the church has had in Asia Minor and say, okay, how does that relate to our own church setting, wherever that may be, but let's say Belgrade because that's where we are right now, and a church that's got potential for growth. You're in one of the fastest growing areas of of the country. I mean, what do we do with that? And if God really did bless everything you did, and you're twice this size in five years, what are you going to do with that? Do you think you can do that and make no changes in your life? Any more than we can take on four kids and make no changes in our life? Is it a bad thing? It's a tough thing, but it's certainly not a bad thing. Now, in view of the kingdom of God, what do you think God would want to happen? Would God want more people to come to faith in this community? So either you're going to double in size or you need to plant some churches. What other options do you have? And right now, I get the feeling you've got a room for quite a few more people. So let's look at what that would mean if you actually did double in size in the next five years. What would that do for you? All right. So here are some lessons from the seven churches. Just a a quick summary. Um... Thank you, guys. And if one of you wants to stay up front and do my, be my amanuensis for me, I'll appreciate it. A little quick summary of the seven churches. Ephesus was a church that lost its first love. In fact, our, our brother mentioned it this morning in his lesson. And these first four in chapter 2, I've got a circle of those. Notice they're the ones on the western side. And there's kind of a geographic order to the way he does it. And it's the one in the middle, in this case in chapter 2, the good church is Smyrna. Smyrna was the one that he had encouraging words for them because they were persecuted, but they stayed faithful. The other three, he didn't have anything good to say. You can sit down a few minutes. And then I'll, I'll tell you when I need your wonderful assistance. Pergamon, which is up there at the top, the northernmost one, of, of all of these seven churches, sites of the seven churches, we've been to all of them several times, Pergamon is my favorite. I mean, it, is, it just blows you away. I mean, when you go up there and see it. It was the most important city in all Asia Minor long before the Romans came along. But the Romans had to have a seaport because that's how they got around the Roman Empire. That's how they controlled the Roman Empire. That's how they got the bread or the wheat Egypt and all of this. They needed a seaport. So Herod builds them a seaport in Caesarea so they can get into Israel and Canaan and Palestine there. But they had to build one, so they took Ephesus and built a seaport by Ephesus. And when they did that, Ephesus emerged as the most important city, and Pergamon got put on the back burner. So by the time that Paul came along to Ephesus, Pergamon was not the city it used to be. But there were people who came to faith in Pergamon, as tough a place as it was. You know the worship of the emperor got a lot of Christians persecuted. Do you know where it started? The first temple to the emperor was built in Pergamon. That's where all of that mess started. Why did they worship the emperor? They wanted federal funding. 
pay homage to the emperor and he's complimented by that, treat him as a god, and what's he going to do? He's going to send a lot of denarii your way. And they got a lot of federal funding. And then Thyatira was a compromising church. It was a church that um, had a hard time standing up to persecution and temptations and they kind of went with whatever was there. They kind of took the easy route. All right. Then the next batch of churches, the three that are in chapter 3 of Romans, I mean of Revelation, is Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Again, the middle one is the good one. Notice that Smyrna and Philadelphia are almost the same latitude. Do you see that? Here's Smyrna, here's Philadelphia. Those were the two good ones. All the rest, he had a few good things to say about them, but he had harsh judgment to all the other five churches. Sardis. He said, you guys just need to wake up. Just wake up. You know, you're, you're just floating. Which is interesting, and I was going to do, because of time I left out Sardis, because I'm only going to look at Philadelphia and Laodicea a little bit more closely to make application tonight. But Sardis, unlike all those other cities, the, the Jews and the Asia Minor residents got along really, really well. So well that one of the largest synagogues in all Asia Minor was built in Sardis next door to the Roman gymnasium. Now, the gymnasium was a pagan place of, of worship and exercise and other things, but can you imagine them being built next door to each other? That's kind of like this church building being next door to a casino, and the casino actually came in net later and you had no problem with it. Yeah, bring the casino on. We're fine with that. My guess is mostly be a little irritated by that. They didn't bother them in Sardis. They just kind of, yeah, let... You know, that's fine, let it happen. And when you visit Sardis, you'll see the synagogue, the, the remains of the synagogue. It's a beautiful synagogue with marble, marble floors and the table for the showbread, as it were. This, is, this will get you. The sides of it have Roman lions on it. Not, not the candlesticks. I mean, that's how kind of, that's, that's what was happening in the synagogue. And now some of these people become believers in Christ. So what, what do you think is going on? He said, you guys need to wake up. He wasn't very happy with them. But when you come to Philadelphia, it was a very faithful church. And he said, even though you have, you're a little church with a little strength, you're still faithful. And then Laodicea, it's a self-satisfied church and it needs a rebuke. I'm going to look at the last two just quickly. Here's Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia was built by the brother who was the king at Pergamon. And the Romans were trying to split, you know, divide and conquer and tried to get him to go against his brother and he wouldn't do it. So it became known as the city of brotherly love. That's how it got its name, Philadelphia. All the way back in the first century. In fact, it was B.C., 159 to 138 B.C. that that name came, uh, came to us. It had no imperial cult until 200 years, which, at 214, which is about 100 years, 150 years after they did it at Pergamon. So there, there was something about Philadelphia that didn't quite go with this emperor worship. The Christians were in conflict with the synagogue here. And notice how close they are to Sardis. They're not 30 miles from Sardis. Sardis, 
They had fine, they were fine with everybody, just kind of laid back. 30 miles away at Philadelphia, they had conflict with the synagogue. And then they were destroyed. Both cities were destroyed by an earthquake in 14 and rebuilt. And so you have Paul coming along. This is, when you visit Philadelphia, we get off the bus, it's, it's going to be an extremely disappointing visit. You're going to say, you mean I paid this to come here? That's what you see. That's what you see. And that's it. <laughs> it was all destroyed by an earthquake, not rebuilt. And what was rebuilt was later built over by the modern city. And so it'll be probably never that anybody will ever see many of the ruins of Philadelphia. Here's the thing we'll take from Philadelphia. This is in chapter 3. He said, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Do you have some open doors in Belgrade? Just think in terms of what are the open doors God is giving you in Belgrade? I know that you have but little power. Sometimes you feel a little powerless. I mean, we're a little church and you know, we got limited funds and you know you know the discussion, right? And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. You know, a lot of times we think we have to be successful and and big, and attract people, and kind of consumer-driven. And I think God's saying, no, I just want you to be faithful and patiently endure. But patiently endure doesn't mean status quo. What's the difference in status quo and patiently endure? They're not the same, right? There are times we'd rather keep the status quo, just keep things like they are. That's not the same as patiently endure. What's the difference? Nobody wants to commit themselves. What's the difference between patiently enduring and keeping the status quo? Yes. And, right, and the changes are going on I don't like. I have to patiently endure things I don't like. I didn't sign up for this. Whereas status quo is, I've got everything the way I like it and don't mess with it. Don't move my cheese. Do you see the difference? They're known as patiently enduring, which I think is an incredible compliment to them. You have, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. So that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brotherly love is important. Christ gives us open doors no matter what our size is. And it is valuable to keep God's Word. It is extremely valuable to stay faithful to God's Word. And there are dangers to apostasy. And he's kind of making all that clear here. 
Let's look at Laodicea, the, the last of the seven. And this is a city that was ten miles from Colossae and six miles from Heriopolis. Both of those are mentioned by Paul in his letters to Colossians. And, uh, and so it's, these were kind of a, a tri-city area. Laodicea was kind of unique, too. They boasted of having a lot of resources except one good resource, which was good water. Heriopolis had all the good water, and I'll show why in just a moment. They had the natural springs. But across the valley at Laodicea, they didn't, so they had to pipe their water in by aqueduct. And, uh, and you can even see some of those aqueducts to this very day. But what happens, when you bring water out of the spring miles away on an aqueduct, what happens is the minerals in the aqueduct build up in the water, and it becomes lukewarm. It was nice cool water coming out of the springs. And now it's yucky water coming into town. So Laodicea was known to have lukewarm, yucky water. So, I, so Jesus, as he's passing judgment, knew his geography quite well. As he calls this a lukewarm church. They all knew what lukewarmness was. So, so he could have said this of some of these other churches. You know, that were compromising. Those were lukewarm. But it's interesting in this one he chooses it because that city was known to have lukewarm water that was piped in. These are the three cities. Uh, Heriopolis is across the valley. This is Laodicea. And that's Heriopolis. You see where the white is? That's where the springs would come over, run over the, the side of the hill and it left the deposits along it. But Heriopolis was an incredibly big Roman city. Uh, when you visit it today, it's, it's impressive. Not as impressive as Pergamon, but it is impressive. Huge uh, Roman theater. Now, these cities competed with each other. You can see across the valley, the Lycus Valley. So what did Laodicea do? They didn't have room for a really big theater. They had the first theater, and then Heriopolis built one bigger than theirs. So what did they do? They put in the first twin theater. Only place I've ever seen anywhere in any Roman city that had two Roman theater, twin theaters. <laughs> of course, we have eight and ten theaters now in our world, but they had two, and that was a big deal. Um, oh, back up. Just down the valley is Colossae, around the corner. These two have been excavated, and now they're re, uh, sort of restoring, reconstructing Laodicea. So when you visit it, you get a feel of what the Roman city was like. Colossae, the Turkish government, has continued to refuse approval to excavate Colossae until just a few years ago. So hopefully Colossae will be excavated. I've walked around the tell, and the tell of the city, the remains of the city, is about the size of a large American mall, shopping mall, counting the parking lot. That was pretty much the size of Colossae. And then I'm sure people lived in the outlying areas, but... The heart of the town was, were inside those walls. And you can actually see an indented area where their Roman theater was located. Uh, this is the street of Laodicea, destroyed by earthquake, and you can tell it from the main street, right? Now, this is extremely historical, because right there, this is where Virginia Loomis tripped and fell and busted her nose and glasses. and It's the only... Uh, I think, injury I've ever had on a tour in 15 or 20 years. It, you know, I just said, hang on to Glenn walking down through here, and Glenn got distracted at something. The next thing we knew, 
crash and burn. So, anyway, I'm sure that was irrelevant to our lesson tonight, but since we all love the Loomises, this is the city. Notice how they're, they're putting the columns back up here. And they even had art, artisans on site to recraft missing uh, elements in the columns so they can put them back up. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I don't know how much money they're spending in this to rebuild it. Okay, Laodicea. I know your works. Well, let me go back to verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I don't know if you're aware of it, but when you read the prophets, what they use as evidence of the truth of God is constantly referring back to creation. It's amazing how much the prophets refer to creation. And then, as the New Testament writers refer to the prophets, the prophets refer to creation as evidence of truth, you know, the foundation of truth. Today, we refer to the Bible. The Bible is our basis of, of truth and and guidance in the Word of God. In the New Testament times, they referred to the prophets, the writing and the prophets, but the prophets themselves referred to creation. And you can see that happening here as they refer to the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. If you're neither cold or hot, would that be status quo? Does that sound like status quo? Yeah. That's, you know, so it's a matter of, okay, something's got to change. So, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And if you ever drink water in Laodicea, the first thing you want to do is spit it out. <laughs> it tastes awful. They can brag about their water over at Heriopolis. For you say, I am rich. And they were. This is a rich city. And, and, and again, as you visit it, you can see the wealth of this city. An incredible city. Greater, better location than Heriopolis and Colossae. So location was a part of their advantage. Everything but water. You say, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, pitiable poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christians can take on the spirit of the community in which they live. If it's a lukewarm community, we can take on that same spirit. What is the spirit in this area that can influence the church in a negative way? What would be some of the typical perspectives of people who live and even move to Belgrade that may not be a positive influence on the church here if, the, if we don't Christianize those spirits, <laughs> those attitudes? 
Yeah, they're more interested in creation than the Creator, but don't even give Creator credit for the creation. <laughs> what else? What else? Yes. Yes. The desire for entertainment, and which entertainment's good, but that shouldn't be our primary purpose in life. Oh, at, okay. Worship, entertain. Okay. All right. Yes. And it's not just one of the family members. They've sacrificed families for income. Or, another way to put it, they have gotten in debt and can't live within their means. And so they have to work their way out and they stay in debt and can never be generous and cannot give priority to the things they need to give priority to in their life. If I think there's anything that should bless you as a Christian, and it's a commitment, but it helps you keep priorities in your life. There's just... It's not always worth it to get more. It's not always worth it to go in debt. We're going to live within our means so we can be generous, so we can serve, and so we can still, and we protect our family and our relationships with others. Otherwise, the bank owns us. The bank owns us. I mean, and that's the reality in our world. That's, that's why I invest in Visa. <laughs> I said that humorously, but Visa stock does great. <laughs> the way people are in debt and pay those... I mean, it's... Uh, anyway. Luke 1 attributed to blindness to our real needs. How did you pick that up in here? Did you see how he talked about your blindness? You need ointment for your eyes to see what you really need. You're satisfied with what you have. Status quo is fine with you. And he says, no, it's not. I am not satisfied with this. And Christ rejects lukewarmness. Christ rejects lukewarmness. For those of you who heard me yesterday, I have this interest in moving people from passive followers of Christ to active followers of Christ. And for those who, whose passivity is really not related to illness or understandable things, then it's lukewarmness. That's, that's lukewarmness. So how do we... Move people out of that. Sylvia, did you have one? You had your hand up. You mean he stole, he stole it from you? Oh, interesting. No. <laughs> okay. So let me take those insights. We can come back to them if we need to. I'm going to look at how faithfulness and not lukewarmness and a commitment to the Lord can impact how we serve God and and. Only in the sense of how size makes a difference. So here's, uh, I've got three charts that just show the difference in size in churches from small, medium, and large sized churches. For the sake of this discussion, and I depend on Gary McIntosh's book, uh, One Size Doesn't Fit All, bringing out the best of any size church. There's a typo there. Uh, published in 1999. This becomes almost a handbook for those of us who are in consulting in churches and different sized churches. And it's amazing how this applies across the board. It's just great insight. Obviously, the size of the church is not directly related to its soundness, right? You can have a spiritually sound church that's small, medium, or large. You can have a spiritually faithful church 
That's small, medium, and large. Just like you can have a, a godly family that's got one ch- no children, one child, or ten children. The size of a family is not directly related to its spirituality. Are, are you with? I'm getting blank looks. But there are people who do associate this, right? How do we do it? What have you heard from people that associate size to spirituality? Okay. What else? Yes. How many baptisms we have? Yeah. <laughs> right. And it, I mean, look at the, you know, the church in, in Smyrna. They were surviving persecution. How are they going to grow in numbers? They were being killed off. So the size wasn't, you know, the fact that they're growing didn't mean they were more, in numbers, were more faithful. In fact, they were dying because they were faithful and being persecuted. So the numbers were going down, which is a sign of their faithfulness in that case. Okay, have you heard people say, I don't want the church to get any bigger? I'll tell you where it comes out, and I've worked with a number of churches where they outgrew their facilities, outgrew the parking space, I mean, they, and they were really going to have to go to two services, and people fought that tooth and toenail. As if the Scripture says you can only have one service on Sunday morning. I, I, didn't, I don't see it in there. Help me find it. But they were holding on to the thing that if we get bigger, we won't know each other and we can't greet you. And I'm saying, really? How many of you even here in a church of 125 greet everybody every Sunday morning? Good. Yeah, because you're at the front door. But not everybody's at the front door. If you go to Africa, in churches up to 100, beyond that it's hard to do. But when you, when the service is over, the preacher goes out the door and usually an elder or two follows him. And then everybody in the church files out and greets them. And as the line gets longer, you greet every single person in that church. And and the line will just wind all the way around until every person has greeted every person. That we had that in Zambia. It was fun, fun to do that. But I thought they'd have a hard time if there were 200 people there. We'd have to let out earlier so we'd have time for the greeting to go around. So size doesn't mean. Well, another thing, we have assumed, especially small churches, and the majority of the churches of Christ are small churches, less than 100. But most of the members of the churches of Christ go to large churches. Does that make sense? More than 50% of the members of the churches of Christ are in larger churches. But the majority of our churches are small churches. And what happens is the small churches assume they're more faithful than the large churches. That the larger you get, the less faithful you're going to be. Oh, don't nod your head. I've, seen, I've heard people tell me that. Right. And so the assumption is the bigger we get, the more unfaithful they are. Well, things can happen. I can understand that. But I've seen, you know, we just better not judge each other. All I'm saying is we need to look at whatever open door God has given us, that's where the judgment needs to come. If we have open doors, no matter what the size is, God expects us to be faithful and serve. So that's where we want to go with this. All right. I'm not going to go through all of it just because of time, but let's look at leadership in a small church is usually done through families. We see it on the mission field where you have a mission team in Tanzania or Zambia. 
um, as, those, as a church is planted by the mission team, it's led by those couple of or three families in that place. In fact, most of the decisions of the church are made around the kitchen table. And I can tell you, many a small church, even in Montana, the decision is made in somebody's kitchen table. And sometimes it's hard to get the decision-making out of the table into the church. And that's why many churches stay small because the structure of it is that it's, it's one family. In fact, even to be a member in that family, you have to marry into it. I mean, to be in the church. And the easiest way to be a treasurer is marry the elder's daughter. I'm saying that facetiously, but I can tell you church after church where I've seen that happen. Do I have a problem with it? Absolutely not. That's wonderful. I would want my family and extended family to be in the, Would you not want that? I mean, if we can't even reach our family, what are we doing? The challenge comes is as we grow now beyond our family, are we going to be a welcoming church to people who are not in our family and expand it beyond that? And that's where a lot of churches have a hard time turning the corner and becoming a mid-sized church. If they turn the corner, leadership will come from committees. It's not a pyramid. It's not a... It's, and, and the word committees... It could be small groups. It could be whatever it is. There's more empowerment there. It's not just centrally located. It's, you know, if, if deacons have a ministry, they're working with it. If those who are working it with the youth, um, if there's several involved in that, then they make decisions related to that area of ministry. Some involved in missions, they'll make decisions. You know, it's, it's done in groups for churches that are 200 to 400. We're in a car, we've been in a congregation that's over 400. They've had a mission committee for 35 years. That congregation has planted more than 55 churches in 35 years. And that missions committee meets every Wednesday night. The mission committee meets more than your elders do here sometimes. And that's just one... Com- I mean, the elders are doing a lot of other stuff. But that's just the missions committee. So in a large church, you can see how that happens. So the mid-sized church is kind of between, in terms of leadership, is between what a small church does with just one or two people or a family making most of the decisions to empowering a lot of different people making those decisions. It's hard sometimes to make that transition. The role of the preacher is very different. In a small church, the preacher is basically called a lover. I would just say, I call him a generalist. He loves everybody. He, he does everything. Back in the old days, he even ran the mimeograph machine and did everything, knew everybody. And someone would really feel bad if he never visited their house. He visits everybody's home. He just knows everybody. You can do that where there's less than 80 adults. That's If they were all married, that's... 40 families, you could visit them and know where everybody lives and know everybody. But when you get over 200, that's a virtual impossibility to develop that many relationships. At that point, the role of the preacher shifts to be more an administrator. His number one role should be preaching the gospel, right? How long do you think it takes to come up with a new sermon every week in a Bible class? 
Yeah, you could. But reality won't allow you to do that. So realistically, I would say half the time of a preacher needs to be spent in study for what he's teaching. Otherwise, you're just going to get recycled material or a lot of uh, mm, uh, and just off-the-cuff stuff. So if you want study, and it does take it, it's going to take about half his time. What does he do with the other half his time? He can't visit 200 people or 300 people. But you want him to provide leadership, and there's administration, partly because he's here all the time. So that's, that's a role shift. By the time you get to 400, you have he, basically a leader of a team. He's the team captain. In nearly all churches of Christ I know that have over 500 members, the preacher is the leader of, the, of a multiple staff ministry where you'll have a, a couple of youth ministers, uh, sometimes even a children's minister, associate minister, and the preacher. And they meet weekly, and he, he provides leadership for that. But that I don't mean he makes decisions for everybody, but they coordinate what they're doing. And they, they do well when they know where they're going and what God is doing with them. Mid-sized church, it gets a bit awkward. Adding one can be a challenge. Once you add them, then it kind of picks up. But that move to adding one more full-time staff can be a little bit of a challenge, which is what I hear you're at right now. And I think that's where you are. Then when it comes to staff, the... Uh, in small churches, as you know, even here in Montana, some of the preachers aren't even full-time. The, the church can't even pay them. And they don't have support from the South. They're bivocational. They'll work and then also preach, which makes it really tough. Where are you going to come up with 20 hours to get a sermon together and a Bible class on Sundays when you're working a 40-hour work week and still have a family? I tell you, my hat goes off to those preachers. And the churches of Christ grew in the 19th, 18th, 19th century by circuit-riding preachers who were farmers, who in the off-season did exactly that. And there are stories of people after people who cared for somebody's farm while he went out and preached on weekends or did a, a circuit of preaching and all this. The church grew on, uh, I mean, when we grew rapidly, it was because of people just like that. And we need more people like that today. We don't need people who retire and go to Arizona. We need people who retire and start preaching and serving churches and using their time. They don't have to worry about income anymore. And they know people in the area. And to use those resources that they have to serve, and they're going to be small churches. And as you know, there's a lot of them. To me, the status of churches of Christ in Montana to in one way, is so much better than it was 20 years ago when I look at Billings, Belgrade, Helena, and Great Falls. But then there's a lot of small churches out there that are struggling. What responsibility should the ones that are growing have for those out there that are struggling? You know, think about it. And I think some of you could be bivocational as a part of this congregation. Go out and help at least one or two. Every... if if. Every church just picked two churches to kind of adopt and help. And I know some have done this. That's going to that's gonna make a difference. And maybe in, they're in, com, in, in a community where they actually can grow again. But in 200-member churches, it's going to be the preacher and a small staff. This could be a part-time secretary. 
And the other one, and typically in churches, it's a youth minister. Uh, in the past, now that trend is changing to more of a utility player. Does that make sense? Somebody who complements the work of the preacher who's full-time. Whatever his strengths are, then you get someone who complements that, that does the other things, or the things that just can't get, can't get done. Another factor in this is how many elders you have. To really serve the spiritual needs of a congregation, you need one per 50. You need one elder per 50 members just to keep the status quo. If you're going to grow, you'll have at least one more than that. So for a church that has 100 adults, you've got three elders. That's not bad. That's not bad. The challenge is they all work full-time. You still need staff because the members are so busy. Have you noticed the level of volunteerism going down? Now, part of it is we feel a lack of commitment and all the things we've just said, but I'm not sure we're going to change that culture. So in order to respond to that, most churches have had to actually bring in more full-time staff to do what volunteers used to do. Now, if you can up the volunteerism really quick, then do it. You wouldn't need another staff. My dad preached for a 300-member church in Artesia, New Mexico. No secretary, nothing. This was in the 1960s. That's where I was baptized when I was 12, and my first mission trip was to Red Lodge, Montana. We supported the preacher in Red Lodge. That's why we always had a heart for Montana. But the volunteers, unbelievable. We had couples that, I remember, worked with the youth men, and they were wonderful. Role models for it. We loved them. It would have been terrible for us to have a youth minister. What we had was far better. But when families don't have time, and in very, if I recall, very few of those women worked outside the home. They were single-income families. Everybody's doing fine. They worked 40 hours a week. They had time for church and other things. And we really had an incredible dynamic in that church. Uh, it's different than today. So we've got to respond to it. Larger church is multiple staff, but uh, that's not your concern right now. Okay, growth patterns. How do small churches grow? Mainly through relationships. It's an attraction through relationships. You bring a friend, and they kind of like this church, and they stick. And they start have a Bible study with one of you or with Chris. And as a result of that, they now have a new family they never had. That's how small churches grow. It's not by programs. A church of 50 or 60 cannot have a good program. Of, I mean, to pull off a good VBS, they have to have a church on the south come up and do the VBS for them. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's hard for them to do any really good dynamic program. Sunday morning... If they have children, they've got grades one through six, and there's four kids in that class. I wouldn't call that a dynamic children's program, right? So if you're a sixth grader and you go visit that church for the first time, and you're taken to Sunday school, and you're in a Sunday school class with a third, third grader and two second graders, what do you think is the response of that sixth grader when they get in the car driving off? Come on, what do you think he's going to say? Huh? That's right. I'm not going back there. Anybody my age, right? So now our Sunday school program is not going to be attractive to a family. So as a mid-sized church, and you're headed that direction, 
you are going to want to look at programs that model key ministries. In other words, don't try to compete with a large church that have eight different programs and all this going No, no, don't do that. Find two or three things that you do really well and do them well. So when people do come, they'll want to come back. And the kids, when they get in the car and leave after coming the first time, say, can we come back in on Wednesday night? Can we come back again next week? You think the parents will come back? Honestly, you think the parents come back? All right. So who, who makes that happen? I mean, the preacher can have the best sermon in the world, but if Sunday school isn't going well, we've lost that family. They're, they're not going to see the importance of that. So this is where, as a small church, we're really working on the programs that are very effective. And then in a large church, uh, it's a proclamation. You know, these, because I assume now in this area, you also have some of these community churches that are booming with a thousand people and it's word of mouth and they're collecting the millennials. They don't have deep relationships a lot of times, but it's the best show in town on Sunday morning sometimes. Growth obstacles to a medium-sized church is, notice, I'm not going to talk about all of them, but notice one of them is staffing. It's kind of the cholesterol factor of churches. (laughs) When you hit up 200 and if you're not adding staff, it becomes an obstacle to growth. Now, you don't bring staff in just so you can say you have two or because somebody else has two, we're going to have two. It needs to be well, you know, strategically, somebody strategically chosen to fit the specific needs and the opportunities, the open door that you have. What is your open door in this community? Bring somebody in to help that open door. And then administration. You can't keep functioning in a 200-member church like you did in an 80-member church. It requires more responsibility spread among different people because the same people can't be doing the same thing. They burn out. They just, and they just, they bottleneck basically what goes on in a church. One more strategy for growth. I'm, I dipped over in the small church because uh, right now you're still a small church, less than 200. Here, at least, Three things I think you may want to consider as you're looking at your own growth is starting new ministries. That sounds strange after just what I said. Find out what you do well and do that well and really give attention to that. And then at least add one ministry that is a response to what? Your open door. If your open door is young families moving into this area, what new ministry could you do that that many of you collaborate together to respond to that? The question I like to ask in churches is, what can we do collectively that none of us can do individually? What can we do collectively that none of us can do individually? And to think in those terms of how we respond to it. And then you need to always be starting new groups. Um, I told the elders this afternoon that from what I've seen... um, in a lot of churches, even at Great Falls, your future strength will depend on the vitality of your small group ministries. You call them life groups here? If your life groups are too big, you're going to have to re... I would do everything I could over the next two years to ramp up and make those extremely vibrant and active small groups. Why? 
Why do you think I'd say that? Relationships. What are these young families looking for? A good sermon on Sunday? And if they want a band, this isn't going to... But you know, there's a lot of things better than a band and a worship service. And it's fellowship with Christians. And that, 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 I used the word trump, but I can't anymore, but that trumps that. You know what I mean? If, if you have relationship and their kids like your Sunday school and they're in a small group with three other couples that are meeting twice a month, they're, they'll learn to love acapella music and singing. They will learn to love whatever that may seem as an obstacle to some. That will mean a lot to them because they want those relationships. And I've even known some situations where a church goes through a crisis with its preacher or whatever it is, and they don't leave because to them the church is their small group. That's the glue that's holding them. Which is different for some of us. You know, I, to me the glue, because you know, I grew up in the church, I've got deep roots, and so it's, I can even do without a small group, and you're not going to jar me out of there. I have just deep roots in it. But others who are first-generation Christians or they're new to this area, they're looking for genuine relationships to help them as parents, to help them with their family, just to help them survive week by week a lot of times. And we've got an answer, I think, in some ways. So new groups. And I would say if your small groups are larger than three or four couples, you need to rethink your small group ministry. Now, I realize somebody may not want to give that up, but and it takes a lot of work to develop leaders, good leaders in those groups, but it's a great way to take people who are passive and then they become active members. And then involve new people, and you do that through the small groups. Uh, notice to get to 200, you need to add staff. You need a long-term plan and improve the quality of what you're doing, no matter what it is. I keep looking at that. Okay. If you look five years ahead, and our time is up, so this is good, but this is something you can have the conversation next. As you look ahead in the next five years, here are four questions I'd encourage at least the elders to ask, but I think it would be good if a lot of you, especially the core that are here tonight, to ask that question, these questions. What are we doing that we should be doing more of? What are some things you're doing as a church right now that you really need to be doing more of that would respond to the open doors that you have and be faithful to it. Second question, what are we doing that we should be doing less of? There's some ministers you may need to just stop and do less of it, depending on the open door. Number three, what are we doing that we just need to stop doing? Just quit doing it. It's not helping you. It's not adding to the, the, the effectiveness of the ministries of this church. It's not, you know, it may be something you're just kind of holding on to, but it's draining energy or whatever. Look at that. There are some things you just need to say, you know, we've done this long enough. We need to just stop. Um, I, I, I can't help but think of the one thing that stopped in this area two years ago was rendezvous. <laughs> I miss it. I mean, I really hate to see something like that stop, but they could not continue to do that. I can understand that. Sometimes you just have to stop 
and thank God for the impact it had for 25 years and the good that it did. And a lot of ministries are that way. Just thank God for the, that ministry and the good it did for those years and now we're going to move on to something because what? Our world has changed. Our community has changed. Belgrade is not the same it was 25 years ago. In fact, it's not the same it was 10 years ago. And are we responding to those open doors? And then what are we not doing that we should be doing? Obviously, I cannot answer those questions for you. You've got to answer these questions. But think about them. And I was going to discuss this, but I've run out of time. I'm sorry. You're not going to be able to help me anymore. And you went to all the trouble to bring this in here for nothing. So I'll, I'll assume the responsibility for that. Uh, Lisa, can I have a couple more minutes? Any comments or questions just for feedback? Any comments or questions? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Well, in that case, you might could uh, cooperate and you know share the cost of it or something. You know, that, if that's if that's effective. And the question I would ask: What has been the response of people to that who have received it over how many years have you sent it out? Twenty years ago? Okay. But I would look at what has been the impact of that. Um, yes? Which one? Yes. Right. Okay. You have had Sundays. You've had 150 people here. And the question I'd ask is, why is it you're not having that consistently? Are you maxing out with the horsepower that you have? If you ramped up the horsepower, would that also get you to 200? And so... Which comes first, adding staff or the people coming? I don't see how you can minister to people without having the staff to do it. So it's a matter of bringing on at least part-time secretary and another staff so that you, you have the rib work to adequately serve the growth that's going to come. And if you're reaching new families, are they low or high maintenance? They're what? High. And if you're already maxed out, how can you handle any more high maintenance people? Somebody's got to have time to minister to them until they become low maintenance and are involved. Once they're involved, we'll do others. But do you see, it's kind of a, you've got to get ahead of the game and it's worth investing in that so you can do that. You're blessed with facilities. I mean, this is wonderful. You're in an incredibly good location, good facilities. Now it's time to ramp up ministry. And the effort it took to, and I know, I've watched the effort you put into this facility now we've got to put effort into ministry. And it takes just as much effort and commitment and investment 
and planning and strategy for ministry to work with people as it did to build the building. And you did a lot of things ahead of time. I mean, do you really need this much space for 80 people? So why did you build this for this many people when you only had 80? What? Well, that hadn't happened. (laughs) But the point is, if you build ahead of the game, why don't you staff ahead of the game? You you get my point? Because without the staffing, you're not going to... You're going to know it when you go to a hospital that's understaffed. I guarantee you'll know the difference. In a hospital that's adequately staffed for the, the typical population that's coming there and one that's understaffed. And when there's ten patients to a nurse, you better stay there all night with your loved one and pray for that poor nurse. It's terrible. I got Both our daughters are nurses, so I know how bad that can be. Okay, good question. Thank you, Sylvia. Any others? Yes. Right. Yeah, if you're, you're, what I hear you're saying, given where you are, you do have a transient community. People will come and go. Uh, is that what I'm hearing you saying? So they're not always here a long time, long term? Right. Yeah, well, I, whoever you get, I hope you keep them a long time and this is the value of it because what they need to do is keep equipping new people. They shouldn't be doing the work for us. They need to help equip people who are doing that work. And as people transition in and out, they, they just re-equip to be sure it's not that difficult to have enough Sunday school teachers or to have enough people to help in any given event and to provide leadership for small groups. And all of that takes a lot of energy that only a staff can do adequately. You know, as far as equipping and training and organizing and keeping up with it, because it's it doesn't just happen any more than this building just popped up all by itself. You mean for organization? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think you do it. Your elders meet every Wednesday night. Oh, yeah. I need, absolutely. I'm, in fact, I am doing consulting for a church that has a, a million-dollar budget in missions. And their missions committee meets uh, once a month. We have a half a million dollars budget maybe in our missions ministry and we meet every Wednesday night just the missions committee has met every Wednesday night I'm saying how do you manage that just managing the funds of it much less give direction to that ministry so I'm I'm pushing them to meet at least twice a month for two hours or once a week but they're all really busy people everybody seems to have VP after their name you know it's like well you're going to have to decide is this important or not but anyway thank you Lee any, any, one more, and I'll wrap it up. 
Any more comment or question? Yes. It, right. That's the word I use is stuck. You get stuck as a church. Absolutely. And you're stuck. And you look around and, well, there's nothing. Why is it doing this? Why are we stuck? And a lot of times. Right. Exactly. That's where staff also helps too because they can be the, they can back up people to keep, and, and, and keep working with them so you avoid the burnout. Uh, where you, for example, in Sunday school, you ask for minimal commitments. You know, just teach for two quarters and then rotate or whatever it is. And if somebody happens to be gone a week, I'll fill in for you. You know, those kind of things that really help back them up so they feel better about making that commitment in a, in a world that we don't like to make a lot of commitments anyway. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, yeah, this, this book talks about a full-time minister as a staff. They don't even count secretaries in that number. But they would say that if you had a couple of staff, you'd definitely need one secretary uh, to just manage the clerical work that comes out of the, the work that two people generate full-time. The, the other thing I mentioned, elder, the elder ratio is one per 50, is a really good ratio. Okay, well, does it make sense when I talk about faithfulness and the size of a church? The size of the church does have something to do with our being faithful in whatever open doors God gives us, and we're going to respond to that and seek to do His will. And I pray the Lord will continue to bless you. And uh, do, you do, do I just end in a prayer, or is there... This is an official meeting with announcements. Oh, does anyone need the Lord's Supper?